KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. Good morning and welcome to Inside Petaluma. I'm Cindy Thomas, co-hosting with Jason Davies and Janice Gator Thompson today. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Friday. Yes. Good morning. Happy Friday. <laughs> yeah. How was everyone's Thanksgiving? Um, I didn't get dressed and then for dinner I had breakfast. Oh, nice. <laughs> and Jason? <laughs> uh, we had really early Thanksgiving. It was kind of crazy. Um, my wife got up pretty early and I think we started eating around 1.30. So it was kind of a Thanksgiving lunch. It was sort of funny because I got calls from family members later while they're going down to, you know, start eating dinner. And I'm like, oh yeah, we already did that. <laughs> so, but it was, it was fun. And I, I made a turkey soup afterwards um, and that went for a few days and uh, yeah, it was good. Just stayed home. We normally visit family, but not this year. Nice. Due to okay. shelter in place. Yeah, it was <laughs> definitely a different year because I've been preparing our family Thanksgiving dinner for probably 25 years. Oh, that's and, right. um, and over that time, amount of time, as kids grow up and get married and they have kids, it morphed into a 40-member meal where I would have to rent a local restaurant downtown to actually have my family over. The restaurant was closed and a friend of mine would let me have the dining room. And that's where we had Thanksgiving for the last four years. And so it was kind of sad this year. Nice Adjustments. We're all having to make adjustments in our lives. Yes. And uh, on that note, one adjustment we've had to make is that we have to pre-record our shows on Thursday and uh, still airing on Fridays, really Thursday for us. But while we have COVID restrictions in place, we pre-record by way of Zoom video conference. So there's your disclaimer. (laughs) So you're hearing us on Friday, but we're actually recording it on Thursday. Yes. (laughs) And um, we have a guest today, don't we? We do have a very, very special guest today. Um, We are thrilled to have... Michael James uh, join us today. He is a producer, a mix engineer, a guitarist. We'll get into some of the details here, but he uh, he was pretty young when he had his first hit. He relocated from LA and is now based in Petaluma. So thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Hey guys, how are you? Cindy, Jason, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Um, Should I point out that I'm actually in the future on Friday, going back in time to talk to you guys Thursday. (laughs) We don't have the time travel worked out yet, but we do pre-record our shows. Um, So things that we're talking about today may be different by the time you hear the show anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. I have to confess because you may have heard about all the smoke and mirrors and the trickery that we do in recording studios to make singers sound like they can sing. Uh, and by the way, most of them really can, but some of them, you know, are a little bit challenged. And I, I haven't figured out the tra- time travel thing yet. I can go <laughs> forward, right? You know, every, every, you know, every day there's tomorrow, and at midnight I'm no. there. Uh, but that I can't seem to go back. Sorry about that. No, 
Yeah. Boy, where do we begin? Uh, let's start with what brought you to Petaluma? I love the town. Um, and I had a little bit of a history with it uh, because I, beginning in 1991, uh, became the fifth endorser of a local boutique amplifier manufacturer named Mesa Boogie. Mm. Um, they were sort of famous for, I don't know how into music, um, you know, you guys or the listeners are, but Maybe you've heard of like a Marshall amplifier that, say, Jimi Hendrix played. And, you know, it would be eight different speakers with an amplifier or two on top. And um, Randy Smith, the founder of Mesa, um, made this tiny little package that was just one 12-inch speaker instead of eight. And it just blew the doors off these Marshall stack amplifiers, they called them. So at any rate, um, in 82, I got my first boogie when I was in L.A. I was, uh, let's see, 20 years of age. And uh, by 91, you know, I was working on uh, records that were destined to be hits. Um, and in the process of making them, you know, I wanted some of the new equipment. So I sent a letter um, to uh, the company from Los Angeles. And I just said, hey, I got this record coming up and I want some of your new stuff, but I, I really can't afford it. You know, I'm up and coming um, and you know, I'll not only will I use it, but, you know, other guitarists with whom I'm working, I'll let them use the stuff and try and be an ambassador because I believe in this stuff and I'm not asking for it for free. But if you have any reason to give me um, some sort of an artist accommodation, that would be great. And um, the VP at the time, who's now the president of the company, Jim Ashow, picked up the phone and he called a place that I just happened to be staying because I was kind of on and off homeless at the time. It, not a big deal, but just, you know, the way things go, especially for artists quite a bit. Yeah. And um, and so I was there to get the phone call and he just said, hey, tell me more about what you're doing. And, oh, you're producing, you're working with other artists. Well, we know these couple records you made, they're cool. Um, and so you, you want some free stuff, right? And I said, no, absolutely not. I'm willing to pay for this. Just wondering if there's any way that we can make some sort of a semi-barter, semi-cash kind of thing so I can get some support and get into this and, you know, sort of spread it, you know, basically be one of your 12 apostles, mm -hmm. um, spread the gospel far and wide. And uh, Jimmy said, um, I really like that. That's very cool. You know, everybody who can afford our stuff is always asking for it for free. And we have a policy that's just no. Um, so, yeah, let, let's let's help you get started. And he was very cool. He, he checked out what I was doing and said, okay, I think these are the pieces of gear that you need. Mm -hmm. I hope I don't get in trouble for telling this story, but I'm going <laughs> to go for it. Cause you know, it just, it just shows the character of Petalumens sure. you know, before it even come up here. And by the way, I'm getting to the point of, you know, how we got up here, but it starts with that. So to finish the part about Jimmy and Mesa, which is super cool. Um, you know, Jimmy just said, well, let's get you the stuff right now. Cause I, I said, how much, you know, what can I give you for a down payment? I, I can't afford that kind of money right now. And, and he said, well, don't worry about it. And I'm like, let me get started. Let me at least send you a hundred bucks. And he's like, fine. If it makes you feel like a man, send a hundred bucks. <laughs> so I sent a hundred bucks and every month I'm paying him a hundred bucks. And he keeps saying, don't worry about it. I'm paying a hundred bucks. And you know, that point is going to take two and a half years to pay this stuff off, right? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, more gear where they think I need it, and they were right, you know, is showing up, and uh, and I keep sending my payments. And one day, Jim picks up the phone. And he just says, "Dude, stop sending me money. You've already paid more than anybody who blah blah blah." I'm going <laughs> to skip over the details, but mm -hmm. the point was that he just said, "Look, we want to help you, 
and you've already proven your worth by helping us and turning us on to new people. We're getting phone calls. Yeah. Hey, Michael James, you know, let us play your amp or you played on a record and mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. And next thing, you know, they're, they're selling more amps. You know, I don't know how many more, but just, you know, every time you hear somebody call in, like in politics, you know, mm-hmm. you get one phone call, you think maybe a thousand other people feel the same. Right. So, um, yeah. So, so, you know, there was actually a really great lesson for me before even coming up to Petaluma. And that was, you know, in a, in a deal, a good deal, there's never one winner everybody wins that informed the way that I, uh, you know, that I, I approach all my artist relationships and endorsements. And, uh, you know, I think, I think even Jason's witness to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, so then, you know, fast forward to, uh, I think it was about 2010, you know, I started coming up here quarterly because I started a business with another person named Brent Babo. Uh, and that business is called Indie Pro Mix. And the thought was that instead of paying, you know, me and some of my friends um, who formed a very small collective, um, we thought, why don't we make our our services as mixing engineers uh, available remotely to independent artists who just have this dream of working with somebody who they, they can't afford or they think is unapproachable. And um, we just said, hey, we are approachable. You know, if you're willing to um, do things remotely, and follow certain guidelines, we're still gonna give you the same quality mix, but we're gonna do it at pennies on the dollar. And we're gonna be working maybe in our pajamas. So you're not coming over here, right? You know, we're gonna send you the thing at this time, you get 20 minutes to listen to it, give us a list of changes and boom, we're done. You know, people loved that idea. So so Brent and I started that business together with um, a few other producer mixers like David Kahn, who worked with Paul McCartney and, and others. You can look at the website, indiepromix.com if you, want to find out more so yeah so so brent helped me with that and brent and i he also helped me found um in alternator records which is my production company and uh, back in 97 so we had this you know by that time by 2010 we had about 13 years of history of basically you know seeing each other at airports or quick visits and we just said you know what dude we're really good friends let's put the effort into a relationship and this is another theme in my life if you want to have a relationship with somebody it never works on autopilot. You actually have to put some energy into it. And so we just decided that quarterly we were going to get together and have a three-day visit. So every, so I pick up the phone, I call up Mesa and I say, Hey, Mesa, would be, I'm, I'm coming up there. I'll be up there these dates. And they're like, dude, we want to feed you. Yeah. Cafe Geostra. <laughs> yeah. We oh, closed yeah. that place a number of times. And we also <laughs> like, uh, it's the, there's a taco place pretty close there. Uh, uh, El Gallo, El Gallo, you know, that place uh, for lunches and yeah. So, so it became a tradition. So I was coming up here quarterly. I'd spend 12, 13, 14 days a year up here. Um, And I frequently walking from Brent's place to downtown um, would walk past this, this pretty cool Edwardian Victorian, um, I guess sort of, you might call it a cottage type thing. You know, it's not one of these grand manners. It's a, you know, it's a, just like a small little thing that, that was really cute, had these huge windows, loved them. And I would walk down this hill and I would think, oh my God, those poor saps, they have this cool place, but they live in a fishbowl. Uh, Lo and behold, 
<laughs> Your fish Guess who lives there now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What street's this on? No. <laughs> I'll find out when I pick you up. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 you'll know the rest of it. You're listening to Inside Petaluma here on KPCA 103.3 FM. And we are talking today with local music producer and recording artist, Michael James. Um, one of the things I have to say I love about Petaluma is that I'm on the west side in the like the very southern tip of the, uh, I think you call it Brewster Oak Hill Historic District, something yeah. like that. And um, so I have both the pleasure, privilege, and pain in the butt of having one of those homes. And it doesn't have the heritage home plaque on it, and we don't want it. But still, we can't do anything like repair a broken fence without getting a permit, which is actually fine because, you know, people like to take pride in the neighborhood over here. Sure. And so... Um, the last place I lived in Los Angeles was a town called Simi Valley, and I loved it. And I was there uh, 2001 through 16, so 16 full years I was there. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, sold, sold my house actually almost to the day that I bought it 16 years later. And in that time, I knew the neighbors across the street and on either side and, um, and kind of nobody else. And then uh, a cat got out at midnight once and I put up some flyers and I ended up meeting about 99 people and wished that I had spent time getting to know 98 of them. The 99th one, you know, answered the door and he looked a little bit like Eddie Munster. And he said, I don't have your cat. I don't have your cat. And it was like, he's like, you're the guy that has my cat. It's a black cat. You probably have it as a Halloween prop. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I just felt like, wow, what a drag. You know, LA is so automobile centric that you don't really get out and meet your, your neighbors. But here in Petaluma, in I'd say a good three or four block radius, I probably know in just three years, 40% of my neighbors, and I know them well enough that I can be up on a ladder, you know, cleaning out my gutters or painting the eaves. Uh, don't get me started on that, you know, buying an <laughs> old house that's in disrepair. Holy cow. Um, I suppose I've been told it was worth the effort, but uh, I don't know. But um, the, the you know, I'd be up on a ladder, you know, just in like 100 degree heat and, you know, backbreaking work. And all of a sudden, you know, even though I was young at heart, I felt like an old man. And I would have my neighbors, like people who own the Cowgirl Creamery or used to own it, mm -hmm. uh, they would say, hey, MJ, get down here. We got lunch waiting for you. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Quickly, it's getting cold. And um, yeah, so like people would pull me off the ladder for that. People come over, don't even ask to borrow a cup of sugar. They're like, hey, can I have a cup of sugar? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's like we, we have this sort of, it's almost like an extended family, you know, but not like a family of like, you know, like you're going to hang out with them all the time. It's more like a family of cousins, right? Or like a, a clan, you know, kin. And I just, I just love it. I love it. Nice. So, yeah. I'm sorry if I hijacked that thread, but. No. I like I, it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you had mentioned that you had been homeless at some period. Um, kind of going to get a little bit more information on that and how you dealt with that and came out of it. Okay. So. I will be happy to tell you about that, but I want to put an asterisk or a disclaimer at the front that just says, you know, it's not a pity and a woe is me story. Sure. I think it was really a gift from the universe, gift from God, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I was born in 1962 in New York, 
um, in Amityville, coincidentally, where I really? guess the Amityville Horror was, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, grew up in Farmingdale and, um, well, grew, when I say grew up, you know, just the first four, first seven years of my life. And then uh, sort of bounced around Long Island all over the place. Um, when I was seven, my parents um, kind of abandoned my little brother and me. Uh, my dad went to Las Vegas and, and, you know, I never understood why. And then I later on realized that it was because my mother wanted to have a good time. And, and she was 16 when I was born. And my dad was 20 when I was born. And my dad, you know, mom was like, you know, according to him, the prettiest girl in, in uh, you know, in the high school, right? My parents were probably a little bit too young uh, when they got married. You know, they were great, lovely people. And I had excellent parenting until about seven. And then they were driven apart uh, due to, you know, some bad habits. Um, you know, my mom liked to drink and do drugs. Dad didn't do drugs at the time, but he drank. He ended up going to Las Vegas and mom dropped, uh, well, actually they both dropped off my younger brother and me at, at my grandparents' house. And, um, and they never came back. Dad went to Las Vegas. Uh, two years later, we found mom when we were camping out in Montauk, which is the Eastern end of Long Island. And uh, the Hamptons, you know, were close. And that's where you had to, that's where you had to go. It was before the Hamptons were really fancy you had to go there to buy your groceries and, and have an ice chest. Um, so at any rate, we, my grand granddad ran into his daughter in the Hamptons. He came back to the tent where we were camping and he said, Hey kids, uh, grab your things. I found your mother. We're going to go see her. He said, okay, cool. Grandpa, what do we bring? And he said, everything <laughs> like, okay, we'll bring, bring everything. So at any rate, we ended up, um, you know, we ended up uh, going to live with her. She was actually living in the garage of the, uh, a movie actress, uh, kind of a B movie star named Natalie or Chat Shilvers. Um, and um, she was dating a guy from a motorcycle gang called the Diablos. Um, I'm going to leave his name out of this. Um, but his nickname was Zero. <laughs> so, um, you know, I grew up a little bit, you know, like, let's see, it would be uh, ages 9, 10, and 11. So the early 70s, um, grew up pretty much on the back of a Harley and learned all the essential life skills, like how to siphon gas from somebody else's car, <laughs> how to grab lobster from somebody else's lobster trap, how to get driven to school in a cop car and make it a cool thing instead of a bad thing. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just wild. And I was a good kid. You know, I did my homework and stuff and, you know, never got into any kind of drinking or drugs or anything. And, and, you know, really the thing about the motorcycle gang was that, you know, sometimes your blood family isn't quite the right one, which is kind of parallel to my story. So you end up choosing your family, right? And, and the gang would look after each other. They just, you know, in some ways were not quite socially adjusted. Um, so, you know, that just sort of set up this thing where, you know, eventually my dad um, got back in touch. He said, why don't you and your brother move out to California or no, come out for a two week visit. I said, sure, come on out. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the two week vacation within two or three days, he was gone because my mother was horrible to him. So we went back to Las Vegas. Mom stayed here for, well, she never left, uh, but I stayed for five or six months when I was in the sixth grade, I guess, sixth or seventh grade. And, um, yeah, sixth grade, I guess it was. And, uh, and yeah, she, she was doing drugs and prostitution. And my brother and I, this again sounds pitiful, but it's actually, it builds character. 
we would go push uh, shopping carts through this turnstile at the Mayfair Market in Hollywood. Because if you push 50 carts through there, you'd get, you know, 50 stamps that would give you a dollar of food. And a dollar of food at the time was baby formula for now our one and a half year old brother. Uh, and, um, and it was also like almost a week's worth of top ramen at the time. So we were living off top ramen and lunches at the school. And I ended up calling up my dad and um, his one of his friends who ended up writing a bunch of number one hits, a guy named John Durrell, who wrote a 1973 hit for Cher named Dark Lady. Mm. You know, he had written the song and it wasn't quite the hit yet when he basically saved me, put me on a plane back to New York to live with my dad's parents. And uh, a few years later, dad called up. He said, come on out. Uh, so I ended up uh, moving out with him. But I guess I was 13. And by 14, I ended up being an emancipated minor because, uh, you know, he had a girlfriend and she was great and they weren't right for each other. And uh, I wanted I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to I wasn't going to take my chances. I wanted to get either an academic or an athletic or better yet, both scholarship. And I knew I was going to go to UCLA. So I really studied pretty hard, went to Santa Monica High School, you know, would go body surfing in the morning, shower at the gym. You know, my girlfriend and the school would bring me lunch. So I'd have two lunches. I'd stretch those and uh, ended up getting a full scholarship to UCLA. Um, actually really twice. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the thing about it is that I had a number of friends who had parents where they could go to if they wanted some sort of a kickstart money, a loan or a gift or whatever, or they just wanted to eat or something like that. And, you know, I was very accustomed to sometimes going a few days without food um, and, you know, didn't really think much of it. But you find later in life, like even approaching 60 years of age, I find that I'm aware of certain habits that I picked up. Like I can't leave a scrap of food on my plate, which is why I don't fill my plate too much. It's like I think in advance, how much food do I need? Okay, maybe I want an extra walnut or two or a piece of broccoli or whatever, you know, so I'll put that extra thing on the plate, even if it's a little extravagant. And, and then I'm done because I can't bear the thought of leaving a crumb on, on a plate, you know, and, and it's like, but I haven't been hungry in decades, right? Mm. And that still stays with you. Um, and, and, you know, so, so at any rate, it, it's, I just find it very fascinating how, you know, young people can be so impressionable that you you know, you really have to take care of them um, to ensure that they they grow up to be like socially fit, financially secure, confident, all this and that. And now in my case, you know, just because I, for whatever reason it's in my DNA or I'm wired this way, you know, I have <laughs> I have enough confidence, you know, maybe even hubris at times. Um, but, you know, I just kind of feel like we can dump our karma anytime we want and we can, you know, we living here in the US, especially in California. And, you know, I, I hate to bring this up, but like, um, you know, uh, not being victims of systemic racism, um, we, you know, we have opportunities to us. And I'm living proof of that. Um, you know, and I'm not saying I'm any better than any neighbor or any worse than any neighbor. Um, but you know, there were all kinds of opportunities where, you know, I should have been the junkie, I should have been dead, I should have been the criminal, and and I wasn't, because, you know, homeless wasn't a bad thing for me. It was fun. I didn't have my own family, but everybody was willing to take me in, and I ended up, uh, you know, I have a number of people that I would actually call families to this day. So, luckiest guy in the world, surrounded by love. I want to underscore <laughs> that, beautiful. surrounded by love. Wow. 
You're listening to Inside Petaluma here on KPCA 103.3 FM, and we are talking today with local music producer and recording artist, Michael James. So what happened when you were 19? Ah, uh-huh, 19. That was, that was a, good, a good year for me, 1981. So I was at UCLA, um, and some, funny enough, a junkie named Trevor some days or Robert, which is Trevor backwards on other days. You never knew what you were going to get. It was Jekyll or Hyde, right? Trevor or Robert. Um, I guess he needed 15 bucks for a fix. And he was an intern at a studio and he had a down day and, you know, keys to the studio. And he said, hey, man, man, dude, can you come in and record some songs, man? Bring 15 bucks and I'll let you record for three hours. I'm like, three hours, man. Even cheap tricks like Double Live Gonzo, that was only like 80 minutes or something. I don't have three hours of songs. I didn't realize that you actually had to set up microphones and stuff like (laughs) now, you know, but now think about micro, you know, setting mics on a 14 piece drum kit and then micing up a whole band. You know, I didn't realize that that could take eight hours to do that alone. Uh, But at any rate, you know, we didn't know any better. I called up two buddies and said, hey, you know, I'm going to go record some songs. And so at the end of three hours, we had two songs and one of them was okay, but the other one was really quite good. It was a song called She Said Yes. And if you can find it by Michael James, I think it's embarrassing, but you know, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. The owner of a record company named Ethan James, no relationship, who used to play under the name of Ralph Burns Kellogg in Blue Cheer, who are famed for being one of the loudest rock bands in history, so loud that they had to actually play off the end of a pier in New York (laughs) City because they were too loud for the city. Um, At any rate, Ethan um, owned a label and he walked through the studio and he heard the playback on the song, She Said Yes, and he knocked on the door and, you know, asked who did it and everybody pointed to me and he took out his business card and he said, I'm offering you a record deal right now on the spot. I know I can get this played on K-Rock. You know, it's, it's perfect for the times. And um, I said, well, that's cool, but I'm not really interested. He's like, you're not interested? Why are you not interested? And I said, because I'm a student. <laughs> you know, my, my, and he's like, yeah, well, when you get over that, I'm going to go beep right here. When you get over that beep, um, you know, give me a call. Here's my card. So I, funny enough, you know, 19 years of age, I had no interest in chemistry, um, but for my major at the time, you had to do chemistry courses. And there was a two week wait, a two, two year wait to actually get in the first chemistry course. And it was really the only one I needed. Um, and if you tested into the honors chemistry course, you could do that right away, my first quarter. So my first quarter at UCLA and a full stu- full scholarship, I am taking 16 units and 12 units of them, I have A's, right? And the other four units, you know, I'm like an F. I failed honors chemistry because I couldn't, I, it was like a 7 a.m. class and I yeah. was gigging and getting home yeah. at two and three in the morning, right? And, um, and you know, wherever home was, right? Um, and, and. I just, I took it again the next quarter and I failed it again. Now I'm in jeopardy of losing the scholarship. And the reason I failed wasn't because I didn't understand it. You know, I I aced the test to get in, but I couldn't make it to class. You know, I would stay up all night the night before a midterm just so that I knew I was going to make it to class. Yeah, you have to do the labs and all that. Exactly. You got to be there. 
So, you know, by, so I think like my average was my average score was like 30 the first quarter and then it was like 68 the second quarter, but it still wasn't good enough. I need like 70. I don't remember what, I don't remember the numbers, but it was something like that. And then third quarter, same professor, he says, Hey man, I need to see you after class. And, and in these classes, like the lectures were like 500 people or something. And then the labs were smaller, you know, dozen or so. And he said, I need to, I need to see you. So to be singled out of a class like that, um, you know, he, he asked me to his office and he said, why are you here? And I said, I need it for my major. And he said, well, clearly your test results are getting better, but you know, the only time I see you is, you know, when there are midterms or finals, I don't see you at classes or labs or anything. Um, you know, I'll make a deal with you. You know, are you, are you ever going to need chemistry again in your life? And I'm like, not that I know of. And he said, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to pass you with a C if you don't come back. Oh, how funny. <laughs> I like that. That's a good. Exactly. You're listening to Inside Petaluma here on KPCA 103.3 FM. And we are talking today with local music producer and recording artist, Michael James. So I ended up, um, yeah, I ended up uh, petitioning UCLA for third world development studies after that. Because uh, I, I, you know, I was really conflicted because, you know, here I was working all night as a musician, racing bicycles in the middle of the day and doing classes in the morning. It was like, you know, it felt like not 24-7, it felt like 25-8. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I ended up somewhere along the way petitioning UCLA to start a third world development major because my idea was to write books about spiritual solutions to economic problems. And um they said, well, that's a really good idea. We'll, you know, we'll petition it. We'll do whatever they have to do, right? And about two years later, they they got accredited to do that as a major. And they said, mm -hmm. you want to be a charter member of this? So I went back to UCLA and did that. It was uh, very cool. So 91, yeah, I got my first, uh, I did that one song, got a record deal. The record came out in 1983 and it was, uh, you know, it was played on K-Rock and K-Rock, it, it was like the big modern rock or they called it alternative or maybe even new wave station back in the day. And ironically, you know, going back to that sort of cycle of being homeless and not, and again, like that's so far in my past, it's like a past life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do recall being on the Venice Beach boardwalk and hearing my song being back announced on the radio. I hear like the last few notes of the song, like that's the new single from Michael James. You know, on K-Rock, you know, 106.7 FM. And I was like, oh, cool, man, I missed it. That's a drag. And then I continued scouring the boardwalk to see if I could find, uh, you know, find some leftover food scraps. And I was thinking, I hope it doesn't rain tonight. And if it does, where am I going to sleep? And uh, by the way, I will give you a little bit of a, a tip here. This is like Homeless 101 if you're really hungry. If you walk up to somebody at like a picnic bench or even a, a even like a burger stand or whatever and you look at them and you ask excuse me are you about done with them leftover chili fries trust me they're done with them <laughs> <laughs> it's a good tip so you mentioned venice beach which is interesting because later um you worked with ray manzarek i did there's really not a big deal about that so um so this guy, Ethan, Ethan James, um, uh -huh. also ended up owning a studio called Radio Tokyo. Yep. And Radio Tokyo um, was brilliant in that it was basically a carpet cave. And what I mean by that was 
you know, there was this little cottage, it was gutted, and they put a bunch of carpet up on the walls to deaden the sound reflections. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ethan decided that for, you know, 25, 30, 35, eventually 40 bucks an hour kept going up uh, over six or seven years, you know, he, he, he decided he would record all the local music acts and um, make them a deal. He would, he would record one song for them for free if he could own the master to the song and put them out on a compilation record. And he curated the stuff. It wasn't a numbers game for him. He actually genuinely liked the stuff and the artists. And, um, and so he ended up approaching people who were going to become megastars you know, in part because of their talent, but in part of because of what he did for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, Ethan, you know, does this this carpet cave thing. And uh, I had been working on a number of records there and I took an interest in it. And um, and he he said, well, tell you what, you know, if you don't want to sleep, the studio is yours from midnight until eight, you know, practice on all your friends. And um, so. I got good enough, you know, working overnight and then still going back to UCLA and this, that, and the other. Um, and, uh, and he, you know, Ethan every week would evaluate my work and you'd say, eventually he said, okay, you're ready. And um, one of the guys, he said, you're going to be recording is Ray Manzarek. And I'm like, the you Ray Manzarek from the doors? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And so that ended up, you know, leading me to work with, uh, you know, some other, you know, classic rock, um, Stars like uh, who would it be? I guess uh, the guys from Mister Mister. Um, oh wow! Can't, you know, I actually there were so many I, I can't really remember them. But the long story short was that he he was really smart in that he kept instead of being like this elitist thing, he he kept his costs down, he kept his overhead down, so that he could still make a few bucks while nurturing the local talent. Um, so so it's sort of like. I guess if you rise the tide, all boats float higher. And so he was really into that. And then it just kind of took this magnetic, had this like magnetic pull and everybody started coming to us. Um, So even though Ray was, you know, just, you know, some days here and there, I don't even know if the record ever came out. Um, You know, it led to other things that really made a difference in my life, like working with Jane's Addiction, Mm -hmm. Courtney Love and her band Hole, uh, L7, Jason, help me out here. Well, you, you, people can look at the discography, <laughs> but um, but yeah, the Bangles—that's another band. You know, it just really, really opened up a bunch of doors, and all of a sudden, you know, I was lucky enough to become the hot guy there, and uh, had was booking three sessions a day. You know, uh, seven a.m. to noon, one p.m. to six p.m., and then seven p.m. to midnight. You and, mentioned uh, you you worked with Weezer too, right? Um. Not exactly. Okay. No, Weezer was founded by Rivers Cuomo, the singer that everybody knows from Weezer, yeah. and Jason Cropper, the guitarist that only Weezer super fans know. Right. Um, and Jason, I met in Los Angeles. Uh, he moved up to the Bay Area. And then when I came up here, I did some sort of an event that he and his uh, his company Vintage King sponsored. Um, they asked me to basically be the talent that, you know, shows how the equipment that they sell makes a difference in my life. And, um, you know, I tend to be pretty open and friendly at these, these things. Um, and, uh, Jason and I just clicked. It was like two peas in a pod. 
And it turns out that he was going to make a comeback. You know, he he wasn't just in Weezer. He was in bands like Chopper One and okay. you know, his own solo thing. And, and he said, you know, I want to do a comeback. And so I helped him. So he's up here now. He's in Oakland. Oakland sometimes and uh, Katati other times. Interesting. Katati or, or Park. One of, one of those two. And um, yeah, so I ended up uh, producing uh, his upcoming album, his comeback album. And it's really good. It's like uh, he listens to like Beatles, Blind Faith, you know, a lot of this classic rock stuff, McCartney, you know, real songcraft type stuff. He's into that. And I think, oh. I think it's great. And he's very, he's like new age in a fun way. Um, he's just, just a lovely human being. And he's a local as well. Now on the local topic, you, you are, I, I believe you told me you're working with some local young artists. Um, I don't know if, the young ones are like North Bay local, you know, okay. there are some rappers and hip hoppers, um, you know, from like the Oakland area, East okay. Bay. Um, so I work with a number of them and local here, locally here in Petaluma, there were some national park service people who have a band um, called Dirty Red Barn. And they're very, uh, you know, very acoustic, you uh-huh. know, almost, uh, almost folky, but with like a little bit of an R and B groove at time at times. And, uh, my wife introduced me to them. It's like, I want you to come see my friends who work at the park service with me. And I'm like, okay, cool. And uh, we just liked each other. And I just decided to help them out. And next thing they're like, Hey, we actually put together a budget. Cause we like a little more than just, you know, help. We want help instead right. of just help. Um, so yeah, dirty red barn, very, very cool band. Um, yeah. The, the, harmonica player um actually reminds me of the blues traveler harmonica player oh okay yeah he plays like Jimi hendrix would if Jimi played a harmonica mm. instead of a guitar um oh. and then you know acoustic guitar and upright bass it's just it's a very cool band so you know jason while you're on the topic of local stuff yeah. um we can almost sort of tie make a loop here you know tying tie back into that all boats float higher thing yeah, yeah. Um, the way that this thing started with Dirty Red Barn, other than Irina introducing me to them, um, was that I was thinking about the whole Radio Tokyo thing, where we mm-hmm. kept things low cost and just wanted to rise the tide to float all boats higher. And um, I I met a couple of producers up here, like Chris Manning, who used to be in a band called Jellyfish, mm-hmm. and Jameson Durr, who, um, who just produced no yeah i think he produced sammy hagar's latest record which went number one on the rock charts and a guy matt boudreau who has a podcast called working class audio and um you know i I called up the guys before i came up here and i said you know what's it going to be like you know for me to work as a music producer up here and they're like you better bring your own clients because there's no work up here like really there's what do you mean there's no work? Well, there's no money. Everybody's broke. I'm like, isn't Silicon Valley up there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, but, you know, bring your own clients because everybody's going to hate you. And I'm like, why? Well, everybody thinks you're going to steal their jobs. I'm like, tell me about your jobs. And they told me about the money that they were making and the type of clientele. I'm like, well, those aren't the jobs that I'm interested in. And you shouldn't be interested in those either if you're doing this as a business instead of a passion. So they, uh, they said, what do you mean? And we got together for a meeting and I said, well, the way that I do it, because you're asking, is I I think of my new hometown like my garden. You know, like I'm a steward of it. You know, if you have a garden, you want to take care of it. You want it to look beautiful. Maybe you want it to feed you or whatever. 
And I said, so I'm actually going to find local artists who are worthy, you know, who I like, who could use some help. And one day a month, I will spend a day with them, helping them however they need, whether it's career counseling, a mix, a production, co-writing a song, whatever, um, whatever it is. That's what I do. And that stuff, when you do it selflessly and you don't ask for anything in return, and it's purely because you want to do something good for the universe, somehow or another, the universe just magically finds a way to make it come back to you. And so they're like, oh, that sounds cool. And I'm like, let's do it together. And they're like, really? So they started doing it. Uh, you know, so they started helping me out with this. And we would just kind of find local artists and help them when we've been doing it unsung except uh, one of my friends, Tim Roth, who's a terrific videographer and filmmaker, uh, actually filmed one of these and we're going to use it as a pilot uh, or proof of concept TV episode type thing, sort of like a combination um, between like this old house, what not to wear, and, you know, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. <laughs> you spend a day or two with an artist, you document the creation of what's happening and you end it with a music video. That's sort of like the coming out, you know, reveal or whatever. Yeah. Um, so we've been doing that. And the code name of it was, coincidentally, Rising Tide. You know, float, rise the tide, float all boats higher. So, yeah. So um, in the three and a half years that I've been up here, I've noticed that nobody's complaining about not enough work anymore. <laughs> and uh, even with the pandemic, you know, a lot of people are isolated. It's tragic. People are dying. But um you know, people who kind of look at the bright side instead of the dark side seem to be doing okay, even as artists. You're listening to Inside Petaluma here on KPCA 103.3 FM. And we are talking today with local music producer and recording artist, Michael James. So, Michael, yeah, you've been doing a lot of work um, recently. Uh, you did an album and you have a new album coming out. Uh, and of course, you've done a lot of work for other people, but this is your album and it's a pretty topical theme. Uh, why don't you explain to the listeners um, what your album's about? The album is titled Shelter in Place. Um, when the lockdown happened, I thought, man, everybody is 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 kind of freaking out now, especially uh, creatives, right? Um, yeah. and, and, you know, as I was talking to some of my clients and, and some friends, um, I realized that, that there was a lot of fear, anxiety, um, isolation. People were forgetting that they're surrounded by love um, and kind of losing hope, wondering if they're gonna be able to eat. You know, I just thought it was, it had potential to be a really dark time. And I thought, well, you know what? Why don't I, I make some songs out of the conversations? Um, you know, the, the feeling. So I, you know, on some of the songs, I was sort of an unreliable narrator uh, in that, like, you know, if we were talking about something, you're expressing your fears or whatever. And I would kind of turn that into a song. So like, you might think I'm writing about me, but I'm not. I'm writing about a, a you know, a fiction that's, that's based in truth, like strongly rooted in the truth, right? Um, and then in other songs, they're very personal. You know, I wrote a couple of tunes uh, for my wife. Um, uh, if you check out the album, uh, Nothing Lasts Forever and um, Rise Up Into Light and, and I'll Be Here, you know, those would be three that, um, you know, that are very personal to me, you know, based on my own experiences and my own attitudes. And then I thought, you know, shoot, it would be like really fun to make a concept album that 
that that really fully deeply explores the themes of love, loss, isolation, um, mortality. People are dying, remember, and um, ultimately hope, right? And finding a positive thing. So I I started with a track called um, "When the Penny Drops," which is essentially like, uh oh, you know, I just realized something. Just realized that something is is happening here, and it it might not be good. So let's figure it out real quickly. And it starts up with an orchestra tuning, and then this just explosion of sound, uh, like the Mahavishnu Orchestra, mm-hmm. and and then it falls off a cliff into something that has no electric guitars. And you know, I'm primarily known as a, an electric guitarist, you know, as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 then you're into a song called Comeback Lover about two people who. You know, and this is based on some conversations, right? And a lot of imagination. You know, two people who get separated, in this case, because of lockdown. You know, you're isolated, and um, um, they get they get separated, and and it could almost be like you know the Berlin Wall coming up, right? Wow. Like you walk across town to pick up flowers for your your partner, and then you go to bring them back to your partner, and there's a wall there, right? Yeah. And that was the pandemic. So you know that explores that, and it's just a beautiful acoustic thing. And then it goes through a number of um, different phases, and there's some interstitial transition pieces that are kind of orchestral, um, and it takes you along this journey of actually having the love, the loss, the yearning, the trying to get back together, um, and then ultimately um, the sort of artistic arc for me before my manager and my team. Uh, you know, talked some sense into me. The arc was to ultimately end with a song called "Rise Up Into the Light," and that's one of the very personal ones, where it, it basically in that song, I'm imagining myself going out the way that I would like to, which is hopefully not in a hospital with a ventilator right. and hazmat suits, um, and and even in the better days, you know, not offsite. It would be at my own home or in the mountains or something like that in a tent, whatever, um, and and surrounded by my loved ones, whether it's three of them or a hundred of them. You know, I hear that at the end of life, being surrounded by your loved ones is absolutely the most important thing for pretty much everybody. Yeah. And uh, so, so Rise Up Into Light, it's basically me assuring these people that like, well, yeah, I mean, it kind of sucks that I can't spend another 600 years with you. But at the same time, I've, I've had a pretty good run. You know, I've been mindful of, of my time. I did my best. You know, even if I wasn't perfect, I, I made an effort. I really did the best that I could. And I love you. And, you know, be happy for me, you know, as I rise up into the light. And that's where sort of the story ended. You know, I figured you might as well make it real, right? Keep it real. Uh, and then uh, my manager said, well, you know, you did this song that's also a, a reflection of the times called Color of My Skin which you can actually see the video because before the album was out, I released this as a single, mm-hmm. Color of My Skin by Michael James featuring Morris Legrand. Um, it, um, it's, and, and featuring Jason Crawford, the Weezer guy, right? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and, and Walter Heath, who was a 70s soul singer. And it's basically a white person awakening um, and, a, and asking these questions like, why, why is, you know, how come I can 
you know, get paid by the club owner and we're in the same band, but you're still stuck there holding out your hand, right? Yeah. You know, um, uh, and, and more, it gets a lot deeper than that. I don't wanna, I don't wanna give it away here. Um, but you know, it's, it's these questions, right? And, uh, and so Walter Heath, who was a soul singer in the seventies, sings the, the black response to the white person's questions. And, and it's, it's interesting because it's a very fine line where, you know, a lot of white people think it's our time to listen and let the blacks tell us what to do. And, you know, people of color and especially blacks of Black Lives Matter, my understanding is like, no, why don't you Google it first and find out what you think you need to do and then come to us, right? Um, so it was really interesting to try and find that, you know, that balance because I really, you know, I, you can't talk to everybody with the same song. You have to pick pick one group of people and, you know, basically people who look like us, I think, might be able to get something from the song. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't want to end the album on this where, you know, the guy awakens. And of course, this was triggered by George Floyd. And all of a sudden it made this, this album that was supposed to feel like a big musical hug. It, mm -hmm. it changed it to a time capsule, a reflection of the times. It was like, but still, you know, okay, I don't want to go out on that note, even though it's very important and I want to keep it in the news. You know, we get so many other things that hijack it. And, um, and and I said, well, I want to keep it in the news. So even though it's not the artistic thing that I wanted to do, it's important. So I figured, well, I'm a craftsman, I'm a music producer. How would I still make that fit in with the album? So what I did was after Rise Up Into the Light, there's an orchestral piece that almost, it's been described to me by listeners as like, oh my God, I could feel your soul going up into the cosmos. after Rise Up Into the Light and then Rise Up Into the Light if you just played, you know, the first few moments of it, that'll give you a sense of what to expect. And that sort of goes from like a field song, a plantation song to like, um, it's like you go back in time to 1863 and then you're transported, of course, to like, you know, riots and stuff with this loud stuff. And then finally, I have to end the end album with a Kumbaya style song called Let's Connect. Let's connect our minds and our hearts together. What would you advise listeners to do to find out more about all the great stuff you're doing? A couple of easy places to find me are www, which I don't need to say anymore, but I just did, michaeljamesproducer.com. That's michaeljamesproducer.com. Um, so that, that gives a broad overview of what I do as a composer, whether it's for films or commercials or uh, an artist, you know, playing instrumental or vocal songs or producing your record or, um, uh, you know, biographical info about me or the main thing, you know, the main shingle that I hang is mixing records. You know, so you record all your tracks and then you wonder why when you put them together, they don't sound like a number one hit on the radio. Um, well, I'm, I'm a specialist at that sort of thing. So mixing, uh, you, you can find out about all those things on michaeljamesproducer.com. And if you already know that you just want to mix and you don't have as much money as you think I need. And by the way, we'll say that, you know, everything is negotiable these days. Anybody in my position who thinks you have a fee that is cast in stone is probably delusional or a 
really lucky. Um, so never be scared. You know, if somebody wants X amount of dollars and you have X minus Y, ask them if they're willing to do it or meet in the middle. Um, and I'm not saying that just about me. I'm saying that about everybody, okay, especially in my business. Um, so another place. So if you, if you are a budget person but still need a great thing, you can go to www.indiepromix.com. And it's not indie with a Y like the race car. It's indie like independent, I-N-D-I-E-P-R-O-mix.com, where we connect independent musicians with professional mixers. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll take anybody's call. You can, you can find my number. You know, if I'm in the middle of a recording session, I can't call you back right away, but, uh, but I will get back to you. Um, you know, call me, email me. Um, and I look forward to meeting you. I, I love this town. I love the people. Um, it's, it's just, I feel like, you know, it's been such a blessing and a privilege to move up here and find something where I can, I can walk out of my house and in five minutes to the left, I'm in the theater district, five minutes to the right, I'm out in the sticks on my way towards the Pacific Ocean, I can ride my bicycle through Redwoods or over the Golden Gate Bridge or up to wine country. I mean, it's, it's just lovely. I'm so thankful to be here. So if you're in the neighborhood, you're my neighbor. Uh, let's get to know each other. Okay, well, thank you so much for being with us here today, uh, Michael James, and uh, good luck with uh, your productions. And I can't wait to go on the website and, and take a look at some of your work. Now, oh, one you, thing you. I want to ask, I want to yeah. ask one thing, can, can we purchase music from your website? I, I believe that... Um, well, for the other artists, like if you if you're going to listen to you know Robin Ford or well, Shelter in Place know, specifically, so Shelter in Place is unreleased at the moment. Okay, it's, it's been um, it's been in the can since pretty much May third when our fearless leader said he was going to open up the country. Yeah. Uh, so I figured I needed to get it done pretty quickly to make it timely. Uh, but for whatever reasons, um, the business decision was made to delay the release of it as an album. So you can you can hear some songs, or maybe if if a guest bails out sometime, we can do a listening session, a sneak peek. Okay. Um, but uh, the two songs that you can actually find videos for at the moment are um, uh, what are they? They are uh, "Color of My Skin," as I told you, and "Push On Through." So if you just look for if you go to YouTube and Google Michael James, "Push On Through." and uh colored my skin you'll and, be able to find music videos for michael you're being a little modest because you do have an album for sale on your website it's an instrumental album you did which is quite good um and that's uh marches sano marches sano marches sano which yeah. is actually my family name um yeah yeah sorry okay well thank you again uh michael and uh you've been listening to inside petaluma here on KPCA 103.3 FM. It's Petaluma's homegrown radio station. We also stream live at uh, kpca.fm, so you can listen on the internet. And we're here every Friday from 11 to noon. I'm here. I'm Cindy Thomas with Jason Davies and Janice Cater-Thompson, my co-hosts. And our time is up. So I'll see you guys next week. See you next week. All right, everybody take care. All right, bye. 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 Bye.